DSMLF Radio, world-leading insight from world-leading peers, helping to accelerate your intelligence. Welcome to DSMLF Radio. The Digital and Social Media Leadership Forum is an organization where many of the world's leading companies come to meet, share and discuss insights and knowledge about social media and new technologies. Today I'm talking with Martin Lindstrom, brand futurist, best-selling author, Martin is one of the world's premier and toughest brand building experts, advising Fortune 100 brands from the Coca-Cola company to Nestle to Red Bull on how to build future-proof brands. Lindstrom is the recipient of Time Magazine's World's 100 Most Influential People. In Martin's new book, Small Data, he takes us to the exhilarating edge of human observation to reveal needs, impulses and desires most would know barely existed sought out by the world's leading brands and corporations to find out what makes their customers tick. Martin Lindstrom spends 300 nights a year on the road observing people in their homes in an attempt to uncover small data and ultimately to create the multi-million dollar products that address our deepest human needs. A contemporary classic that mixes armchair travel with behavioral science, small data is a fast-moving globe-trotting narrative that will fascinate not only marketers but any reader interested in the infinite variations of human behavior. So welcome, Martin. Great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you, Jill. So tell us about Small Data. The book, I believe, is out in the US on the 23rd of February and on the 10th of March in the UK. And it's quite a controversial book. Everyone's talking about big data. In fact, that's where we originally met you, were due to talk at one of our events about big data. And yet you're talking about small data. Tell us a bit more <laughs> yeah. about, about that provocative idea. Well, the reality is, I think, that the world has become more or less obsessed with the big data, fundamentally believing that any question you may have, well, guess what? You'll find it on a server somewhere, and that server is, is really containing all your big data. I kind of have come to that belief right now that there is something broken about this. Uh, I think the best way to illustrate that is really back in 2012, where Google um, announced for the first time ever that they were able to predict a flu outbreak five days before it would take place based on search algorithms. What they learned was, however, that that big announcement, which really took the whole medical uh, society in the U.S. by storm, because suddenly they were able to predict things and send out the goods in advance of a flu outbreak. But what really surprised everyone was just a couple of months ago where Google had to admit that there was a mistake in all this. In fact, the Center for Disease Control had analyzed all the numbers and concluded that the numbers Google came up with, the prediction they came up with, was two times what they should have been. The reason why was really because uh, when we all type in the word flu in a box, well, then we're affecting each other, and the neighbors are saying, gee, I have to type that in as well, even though they're not you know, nearly having a flu, and suddenly everything went south. And you could say that in many ways where Google were very focused on creating a correlation, they forgot about the causation, the reason why. And in many ways, this book, Small Data, is all about the causation, the reason why, which really, in, in my mindset, is the counterbalance to big data. Uh, I think it's like the yin and the yang, and we kind of forgot half of the picture here. So what I've done over the last couple of years, in fact, the last 15 years, is to start, try to analyze that and figure out what is that counterbalance we need. And by the way, instead of just going down the theory land, try to practice this and see if it works. 
And I think the best example of this is really back in 2002, where the Lego company um, had a major problem uh, back then. Uh, they had just missed their Christmas sales, and around 70% of a toy company's sales actually happens up to Christmas. So it was a bit of a disaster. In fact, it was such a strong disaster, we could say, that, that they were likely to go bankrupt within a year if they would not turn around. Based on big data back then in 2002, they concluded that the arrival of the instant gratification generation had just taken place. And that would mean that Lego had to, to change the entire strategy and their products as well. So they concluded, well, kids obviously don't have the time to play with Legos anymore, so we have to change the size of the Lego bricks, which is exactly what they did. They basically reduced or changed the size from these tiny bricks to gigantic building blocks. So the building time would go from, let's say, six hours or seven hours on average to one hour, if not less. And everyone believed fundamentally this would be the right answer. Um, but in 2003, they were even more in a disastrous mood because once again, they lost the Christmas sales. And at that stage, the CEO announced that this was a serious crisis and Lego probably soon would be put up for sales. This is really where the story for small data begins because in that story I'm going to tell you right now was really the foundation for the term and its creation. Uh, because the true story is that the team from Lego goes into the homes of consumers across Europe and lands up in an 11-year-old boy's home in Germany. And one of the questions the team is asking is, what are you most proud of? And this young kid, he's saying, those pairs of shoes and he points at an old wear, worn down pair of sneakers where the heel was almost gone and it was pretty dirty. And they're all a bit surprised about that. So they take down this pair of shoes and then he sort of holds them in his hands. And they're saying, why? He says, because they are my evidence that I'm the best skater in town. And they're all pretty shocked about that and, and ask him why. He said, look at the wear and the tear of this pair of shoes. It shows that I'm sliding down this skateboard exactly at the right angle. And that angle means that I am number one. And in fact, this was his trophy. And that was really the minute where the Lego folks woke up and they said, hey, there's something here we have completely overseen using big data. And that something was really the reality that kids, if you give them the, uh, the stories, if you give them the power, suddenly they are sitting in the driver's seat. And as they're sitting in the driver's seat, in fact, time is not an essence anymore. In fact, they'll spend whatever time it takes to become the leader. And out of that, later on, the Lego movie was created. And by the way, the size of the Lego bricks was changed from those gigantic building blocks to tiny, tiny bricks. And, and I think the rest is history today. Lego is number one. And this is really my story about how small data has been missing in our picture. That's not to say that big data is obsolete, not at all. But it is to say that we need a counterbalance. And that's really what my book is all about. That's an amazing story, <laughs> especially <laughs> being such a well-known product as well. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think in many ways, what I'm trying to do is to say to the world, we probably need to uh, get out of that office. Um, as you probably will notice as you read my book, that it is really a a journey I'm taking the reader with uh, across the world. I'm going to some 30 countries in the book and basically discovering or picking up small 
data. I, I tend to say that small data is really what I call emotional DNA. Just like you have rational DNA, which is what Sherlock Holmes were picking up whenever he picks up a piece of nail or skin or whatever, well, I'm picking up emotional DNA. And we all leave emotional DNA behind ourselves in homes. I mean, everything from how you place your shoes to your toothbrush, how that's placed in the cup, to how the toilet paper is hanging, to the size of your paintings, to how you decorate your fridge on top. All those things are really emotional DNA. And, and until recently, we really haven't sort of assist a lot of value to those things. But I have to say now, conducting more than 2,000 of those home visits where literally stayed or lived in the homes of consumers across 77 countries, I come to realize that in fact, just by walking into an ordinary person's home, you very quickly can assess the personality of that person, their deepest thoughts, their emotional things, but even their emotional drivers when they are making purchase decisions. And all that stuff is really creating an enormous insight into a person's life and by that also creating the foundation for a hypothesis, which really is the causation, which is so much needed when you want to do the correlation later on using big data. It's just amazing to think how as a as a world where we are so focused on on big data with the technology that we have and, and how this information is so much more readily available. And yet as you as you've said, we, we sort of we're missing the, the small data that you're actually looking at in so in so many ways. Have you got another example of um, of, of where small data has been used to um, do something completely different? Well, absolutely. Um, I, I find it fascinating that that our lives are completely changing because of technology right now. Um, one of the biggest shock I had was when we started to analyze the design of kids' bedrooms today. Kids, by the way, don't have desk anymore, uh, so desk manufacturers are going broke across the world, which I had no idea about until I started to talk to them. Uh, the people which are producing pillows and cushions, by the way, are completely revamping their factories right now because kids are living in bed instead. That's where they're working, that's where they're eating, that's where they're sleeping, that's where they're talking, that's where they're socializing. So everything is really centered around the bed, which we're not really the issue. Ten years ago there, everything was like how you and I uh, were living when we were young, I'm sure. But what had also happened is, of course, that the social media consumption has changed the way we interact with the world. And, and there's a lot to say here, but one of the things which is really interesting is that the transparency, which I think you and I at first would think that's great that we have more transparency in the world, in fact are a downside right now. The more transparent things are, the worse it becomes. Evidence in point, I mean, when I was a kid, I had 23 or 24 uh, classmates in my school. Um, today, they have basically half a billion competitors, not the 23 in school, but the whole world they're competing against. We all can see what other people have and what they don't have. And we basically all can see that we are number two or number 10 or number 2,000, but we're never number one because there's always someone which is better. That transparency also has meant now that there's a lot, lot of insecurity taking place. And I think just to, to, to attach a case to this, um, a fashion chain here in Europe uh, from Switzerland originally, asked me to to revamp their concepts because they've seen a, a drop in sales. They did not know why. Um, they just knew that whenever they were talking to consumers using the usual path of data observation, then 
every time people are saying we love your clothes, we think it's fantastic, yet the sales was always going down. Now this fashion chain with about 1,200 stores across Europe appealing to young girls between 12 and 18 years of age, it's a little bit like Forever 21 if you should compare it, they actually um, had realized that there was some disconnect between how the young girls were living and what the brand was standing for. So what we decided to do was to move in with young girls with permission from the parents and basically understanding the philosophy and their mindset as they were waking up in the morning. Now, what was really surprising was that whenever we analyzed the girls, we noticed that they would wake up 11 minutes earlier in the morning and they would show up in school 12 minutes later. So in fact, there was 23 minutes which were unaccounted for. And whenever we asked the girls, they had no idea about what they're using those 23 minutes for. That until we started to analyze what they're doing. And what we realized was really shocking. First of all, to understand what they were doing, of course, we do these extreme investigations. Again, of course, with permission from the parents and from the girls. But we went into the bathrooms, went into the shower, realized that the shampoo and the hole in the shampoo bottle actually had become smaller than it was just 10 years ago, which actually means that you're spending less time in the shower. We looked at the creams they're using, and the hand cream was oil-based. And by the way, 10 years ago, it was water-based. And the facial cream was water-based, and 10 years ago, we're actually the opposite. And when things are oil-based, it creates this shine, and when it's water-based, it's less of a shine. We also noticed that the facial powder they're using was you know, much more dramatic than it was just 10 years ago. And out of that, we sort of could start to conclude, hey, we know what they're doing. In fact, the first thing girls are doing when they wake up in the morning is to take a selfie of themselves. <laughs> and not just one. We realized this was pretty prominent. And how did we realize that? Well, very simple. Because when you have dry hands as you wake up in the morning, you like to have some oil-based hand cream on you. And by the way, you don't want to take a selfie of yourself if your face is shining. That's the reason why they used water-based cream. And they're putting powder on so they're not shining. So in fact, they started to be on stage the second they're waking up. But we then went back to the big data. We talked to the telecommunication company and the, the, the providers. Again, with permission from the parents, we realized that they're not just taking one selfie of themselves every morning. Now, guess what? And I hope you're sitting down right now, Joe. <laughs> in fact, they were taking 17 selfies in average of themselves every morning, these young girls, not just in Switzerland, but across Europe, including the UK. And of course, you can ask yourself, why the heck do they take 17 selfies before they go to school? Well, the answer comes back to transparency, because what they did was to color coordinate the clothes. They wanted to make sure that they had the same type of clothes as the best girlfriends, but not exactly the same. They wanted to make sure they had the same type of colors, but not sort of exactly different as well. And out of that, they actually were sitting color coordinating things. And what we then realized was, if you're taking 17 selfies of yourself every morning, well, then you're running out of options very quickly. <laughs> and that's the reason why we introduced two more seasons to the collections that they have today, six seasons, this fashion chain. And we also introduced a, a whole new dressing room, by the way, as we started to observe dressing rooms. And again, with permission, girls were walking in and out. We realized that girls are buying stuff in, in tribes. 
So we increased the size of the dressing room so five girls could be inside the dressing room, which, by the way, was not the case in the past. But we also went one step further, installed large screens, interactive screens in all these dressing rooms, where when you press those screens, you are logging into your Facebook account. You drag in your best girlfriends, and then it takes a photo of your new clothes you're wearing, and they will vote on it with percentages allocated to each of the pieces you're wearing, if they like it or don't like it. So 15% like the shirt and 16% hate those bags. And out of that, they could then basically use the community to choose the clothes, but they could also at the same time send a selfie to the rest of the world. So this is an example about how, again, small data helped us to find causation and big data started to verify and create the correlation which is so needed. Mm-hmm. Well, you're talking to a mother of a nine-year-old girl, and it's very scary <laughs> what you've just told me. <laughs> but also interesting that I, I read a while ago that the retailers who are really embracing the the digital um, technologies, um, you know, will really make a massive difference to their to their bricks and mortar businesses in exactly the way that you've that you've just described. So really interesting to to, to hear that. So. Just to, to finish, how, so the people that listen to this show, are, as I, as you know, are, are sort of corporate people, very focused on big data because that is very topical in organisations currently. How can they start to think about small data for their organisations, which I, I appreciate is a broad question because obviously they're all in different uh, sectors. But yeah, um, I would almost claim you can write a whole book about that topic, right? It's a good question. I think just to, to, to summarize 265 pages, I think <laughs> the essence of it is to become more present. I think the issue is that we all hide behind our screens in the offices, fundamentally believing that we don't need to talk to consumers anymore. Um, I was doing a, a, a keynote speech at the World Business Forum the other day with, with 6,000 people in the audience, and I asked everyone, how many of you have spent time in a random consumer's home over the last year just understanding your product or services? And two people out of 2,000 raised their hands. And that is where we have the problem because you know, if you're married, there's no way you can define the reason why you love your husband based on big data. You can't say, I love him because of the force last digit in his mobile phone number really turns me on or he's one meter and 72 centimeters high and that's fantastic. That's not the reason why. But that is the definition of, in many cases, of course, in, in big data, not all, but many. What I'm saying here is that there's always a human dimension to this. And if we forget that human dimension, what happens is that we all have more or less access to the same data. And we are more or less all mining it somewhat the same way. So we're all more or less ending up with this sort of the same solution. It is the small data which are creating that point of differentiation, or most importantly, helping you to identify a hypothesis which you may not think of when you are doing the mining of your big data. So long story short, you need to be more present and more aware. And, and in order to do that, to build in a process where you actually do pick up those small data. And I'm not saying you should do huge investigations, but I'm just saying you actually may have to talk to certain consumers in a very systematic way where those data you obtain actually can be used as a foundation. And there's a certain process which I call the 7C manifesto, which you can go through. It's not that complex, but it's just a mindset change internally in your organization so that you're not just focusing on one dimension because because I do think just as we have a right and left brain, we also have small and big data. Mm, yes, that's that's just been so fascinating. Thank you, Martin. I'm uh, I'm definitely going to get the book. <laughs> Looking forward to reading <laughs> well, more stories. Well, thank, 
thank, thanks a lot for that. And, and of course, to all the listeners out there, if you are curious to mo- learn more, just go into my, my Facebook account or, or, or Twitter or into marcelinstrom.com because they are actually discussing that topic every day uh, with examples from around the world. So I hope to see everyone out there, of course. Lovely. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. And thank you for tuning in to the listeners. We're going to continue to be covering a whole variety of themes and topics going forwards. And if you'd like to be on the show, please do get in touch with us via the website dsmlf.info. DSMLF Radio, world-leading insight from world-leading peers, helping to accelerate your intelligence.